Welcome to The Inside. This is the week we've all been waiting for, as things began to look a lot like a typical summer season. Across the world, with more than 90% of cinemas now open, Marvel Studios summoned its fans to theaters, and they came by the millions. Black Widow generated $158 million at the worldwide box office and another $60 million on Disney+, Plus for a total of more than $215 million. That's the biggest opening since Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker in 2019, an impressive debut. And after being gone last year, actors and directors returned to the French Riviera for a more modest Cannes Film Festival this week. A high point was the new film Stillwater, starring Matt Damon. At the end of the screening, the audience stood and cheered, giving Damon a five-minute standing ovation as he choked back tears. The reviews suggest that Damon could be on his way to his fourth Academy Award nomination next Oscar season. I'm Jim Chabin in Los Angeles, and with me is the co-host for this series, Wim Byans. He serves as CEO of Cineonic, and he joins us live from Brussels, Belgium, where it is evening. Good evening, Wim. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good to hear you. Well, uh, as I said, Wim, this is the week we've been talking about for, for yes. months. Uh, Black Widow opened up the worldwide box office, $215 million total. Analysts are indicating about 8 million people bought tickets at cinemas and about 2 million Disney Plus subscribers paid 30 bucks to watch it on Disney Plus. What do you make of all that? Well, I think that's what I believe is, is happening is that people love to see a great story, right? And so when you make a great story, the people will decide via which media they will look at it. But they will definitely watch it, and that, or they will definitely experience it. And I think I'm, I'm really encouraged with uh, the numbers, uh, specifically also the box office numbers. And of course, I think it is it is a real trust towards the industry and, and especially to the filmmakers that when you make a great movie, and we know that they did a lot of hard work to make that happen, that you get these returns, right? So, so you know, I think I'm thrilled about it. So, well, this week the headlines have been dominated by the ongoing struggle with cybercrime. Uh, there have been meetings at the White House and elsewhere about these issues, and hundreds of companies have been hacked and held for ransom. There have been more than two dozen movies about cybercrime over the years, from War Games in 1983 to the James Bond sequel, Skyfall, to The Matrix Reloaded. Cyber stories have been a big part of Hollywood's imagination and storytelling. And of course, Publicly, we know that Sony Pictures was actually hacked in 2014 and the talent agency ICM has been hacked along with episodes from Netflix of Orange is the New Black. How big is cybersecurity in your thinking when you talk to movie theaters? Well, I think yeah, we get more and more digital, right? Uh, so the whole movie business is, is going digital. The projectors are digital. Everything is digital. Uh, we got virtual productions these days. So so it means that that we have to adapt to the new reality in the digital world. And I think that cybersecurity, the fact that we like it or not, it's just part of it, right? It, it is part of, of life these days. So I don't think it, it's it's good or bad. I think going digital massively means that, that we, we are more vulnerable to, to cyber attacks, uh, sadly so. Well, behind the scenes, we've heard from folks that... Uh there's really an ongoing effort to hack Hollywood. So we want to talk about it this week, and we have two perfect guests for this conversation. They're leaders at Blue Voyant, one of the most trusted cyber safety organizations in the world. Austin Bergloss is global head of professional services. He served as the assistant special agent in charge of the FBI's New York cyber branch. Welcome, Austin. 
Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And also joining us is an advisor to the board of Blue Voyant, James Aquilina. His background includes time as an assistant U.S. attorney in California, where he led cybercrime investigations and prosecutions. Welcome, James. Jim, Wim, nice to see you both. Great to be here. So thank you both for coming in this week, right? Before we zoom in, how cybersecurity affects the entertainment world, Austin, what kind of hacks are we experiencing today? Ransomware is king. Um, cyber criminals, many of them who are operating with safe harbor, are locking up computer networks and holding stolen sensitive data for ransom. Collateral damage of these financially motivated attacks are, are after organizations in the critical infrastructure sectors. Some of the most recent attacks, one happened um, on Friday, where a group called Our Evil, it was a, it's a ransomware gang, targeted uh, multiple managed ser uh, service providers in a massive supply chain attack that's affected over 1,500 companies. And the attack um, basically went and, and locked up thousands of companies. And the ask, the demand was probably the largest ever uh, for a cyber attack. It started at $70 million for the, uh, for the ransom. And eventually, after a couple of days, went down to $50 million. Who are the actors that are doing that and what do they want from these people? Yeah, the, the, the actors are, I would say there's three types of groups out there. One is the financially motivated criminal groups. Two are your nation state level actors. And then your third are your hacktivists, your anonymous type that are looking to, to send a kind of a politically motivated message. The folks that are doing this are, are in the criminally motivated, financially motivated group. When people think about cyber criminals, they're often portrayed as people in a dark room behind a computer screen. But, but how do you identify those threats and, and what are really the people behind this? Uh, Wim, the, the group responsible for this recent Kasei attack is known as Revil. Um, and this organization has actually been the focus of security and law enforcement now for over three years. Here's what's crazy. When I think back to the time that I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office and prosecuting these kinds of crimes, often actors were... Uh, working in much smaller groups than today. Essentially, ransomware has now become a service, a business. It's almost like a functioning enterprise where different aspects of the attack are actually handled by different groups or affiliates. If I pay the ransom, what's the percentage of a chance that I'm actually going to get my, my system back? Very, the, the chances are very high because these ransomware groups are running a business. And they know that if someone pays them a million dollars to get their stuff decrypted and they default and move on and don't do it, they're going to get a bad name and no one's going to pay them the next time. And that's the way it works. <laughs> that, that being said, often the decryption keys that are provided when a ransom is received aren't always effective or take an extraordinary amount of time to decrypt the data, causing tremendous business interference and interruption. And, and look, this is the controversy now, is historically law enforcement has been reluctant to comment one way or the other about whether to pay the ransom. These days in the advent of Colonial Pipeline, now Kaseya, the meatpacking uh, breach, you know, the government is starting to think differently about what guidance to give companies that are victims of these attacks. There's a a new ransomware task force that is looking at whether to make available to victims a ransomware fund 
there's discussion about requiring regulation or legislation and making it simply illegal to make a ransomware payment. Um, and there is a whole sea of folks that believe that cryptocurrency is one of the the most significant factors in why ransomware attacks are effective. And so there's a lot of controversy about how do we regulate this? It's such a complex issue. The 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 to James's point, the government cannot stand up right now and say, you cannot pay. It's illegal to pay until there is enough resources and support for these organizations to protect themselves against the ransomware attacks. If you passed a law, if all the if the if the G7 got together or the United Nations and we passed a law that did make it illegal to pay ransom, would that fix it? Uh, in my opinion, no. If you make ransomware pay payments illegal, there has to be other things um, done as well, which is the regulation of of, uh, of e-currency so that uh, law enforcement and others can track those payments. Because when, when faced with whether or not your, your, uh, your business is going to go under or doing what it takes to, uh, to negotiate with the bad guys and, and get your stuff unlocked or your data back, most companies are going to do what it takes to get it done. Throughout the pandemic, many companies have moved from remote working to home working. What does it do to us? Does that mean that, that the, we are more sensitive to crimes, to cyber crimes in that sense? And, and how, does it, how does the criminals get into our system? The fact that remote work during COVID has created additional cyber, cyber risk is pretty evident. Um, and I think part of the reason is that there's certain kind of both individual and corporate hygiene that's required for best practice in remote work. Is this something every single person listening to this uh, podcast should consider a clear and present threat to themselves? 100%. Um, aside from ransomware, they collect, if they are able to, through the social engineering or phishing emails, um, collect your username and password, they're going to try it on your sensitive accounts. They're going to figure out where you bank. They're going to figure out where you have your stocks. And then they're going to try those against those accounts and try to try to drain your bank accounts to offshore accounts while you're sleeping. IT security is now seen as something everybody's responsibility, right? Both at work and at home. What can we do as an individual to protect ourselves? I think for individuals working from home, it's it's absolutely critical from a protection standpoint to uh, take certain measures to protect what you're doing, given that you're no longer uh, in the office. And that includes things like using a virtual private network and having good password hygiene. Uh, setting up two-factor authentication, using strong antivirus software, uh, being careful of phishing scams and understanding you know, how to navigate the internet safely, making sure to install updates regularly, keeping work data on your work computer, which is often a lot more secure than a personal machine that doesn't have you know, the same type of security uh, protection in place. I'm going to start with social engineering because that is really the number one way uh, that uh, the bad guys are, are are being successful. And if you can, Austin, tell us uh, some of these terms. Just explain to us for our for our non-educated uh, cyber uh, listeners what what you mean when you use some of these terms. Sure. Um, so social engineering is a a broad term for techniques that cyber criminals use to gain access by exploiting certain personal information that can be done through an email, uh, through a text message, 
or through a phone call, these robocalls where you pick up the phone and they say they're from the IRS and they want your social security number. These are, these are techniques and ways to, to collect certain PII or personally identifiable information that can be used to either cause financial harm or used for further on criminal exploitation. So social engineering being one, uh, phishing emails, either the email has a link that uh, it, when clicked upon, you know, puts you puts some sort of malware or virus on your computer and they start collecting uh, keystrokes and other information, or there's an attachment uh, that's sent and that attachment is also uh, loaded with a virus and, and can give a uh, entryway into your computer. The immediate mandatory fix for this is that two-factor authentication. Most legitimate financial institutions will have the ability to allow you to have multi-factor authentication. We have seen time and time again that even the most sophisticated cyber criminals, if they come across an account that has two-factor authentication, they will move on and go to one and find one that doesn't because there are plenty of them that are out there. They won't take the time and try to do, uh, defeat multi-factor authentication. It takes too much effort. Our insiders today are two of the foremost cybersecurity experts in our industry and the world, Austin Bergloss and James Aquilina of Blue Voyant. We'll be right back. The Insiders is proudly presented by Cineonic. Cineonic's future-ready enhanced service and technology solutions provide compelling cinema experiences, peace of mind, and financial flexibility. Today, with more than 90,000 projectors installed globally, over half of the world's cinemas are illuminated by Cineonic. Visit Cineonic.com and discover why theaters look to Cineonic to provide the solutions of tomorrow today. Our insiders today are Austin Bergloss and James Aquilina. Many of our listeners are in the entertainment industry. Throughout the industry, we share, we collaborate, we create digitally and online. What are really the threats we are facing if you think about it? We're starting with production, post-production, distribution, exhibition. Yeah. What, what are the threats we as an industry are facing? Wim, it's actually incredible when you think about the type of assets that are typically created or transferred during production whether it's episodic and season outlines, network drafts, production drafts, cast lists, crew call sheets, TV guide synopses, right? And then moving into the video content, you're dealing with dailies, you're dealing with the network cut, music and FX cuts, the early HD cam, dubbing clips. Um, they're all kinds of assets that are created. And then across the kind of information life cycle of content creation and production, there's these various facilities, right? You've got audio dubbing and subtitling, you've got courier, delivery, freight, creative advertising, digital cinema, digital services, distribution, uh, post-production services. And like many companies that rely on third parties, the entertainment industry is, and the information life cycle of of, of, of content creation and distribution is absolutely dependent on third parties. And so it's becoming a lot more important for studios and other major players, whether you're on the creation side or on the distribution side, to focus on policies and procedures that include things like physical security, inventory and asset management, information technology security, 
human resource policies and procedures, how you're dealing with third parties, what you're doing to investigate their security posture and what NDAs or contractual obligations exist with them, and having an incident response plan. I mean, the world has changed and it's changed for the entertainment industry as well. And I think that there's been a huge shift in content security policy and program and procedure development. So so if I hear correctly, it's not about auditing your, your vendors, uh, but it's about really hiring companies which checks their vulnerability from the outside, right? That's right. Yeah, there is, um, since the pandemic started, we've seen a massive increase in what we call the attack surface. So every computer, uh, cell phone, uh, laptop that's put on the network increases the uh, the attack surface and is just another gateway and door for the bad guys to step in and 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 compromise. Um, it's the wild west. Um, oftentimes they're unmanaged, meaning um, there's no monitoring software on there. The company doesn't have ownership of it. So James, piracy has been a longstanding topic in the entertainment industry. Someone gets a copy of a print and all of a sudden you know that it's being uh, bootlegged in uh, you know the Far East. With the rise of cybercrime, are you seeing new ways of protecting content IP for these, uh, these studio partners? Sure. I mean, I think that there, there's a couple things I'd say, Jim. One is there is a much greater focus on relationships with third parties. You know, I investigated breaches where a casting agency providing subscription episodic script content was breached and it Im implicated the content belonging to four different studios. So I think this, when you hear about supply chain attacks, that is a huge risk in my view for the entertainment industry as well. And I think there has been tremendous focus these days in the entertainment industry about all of the third parties in the information life, life cycle, how to share and how to protect and ensure the security of those parties, including the trusted partner network that, that was spearheaded by the MPAA that helps companies assess the third parties in the chain that are handling data or and otherwise involved in the distribution of content and provide suggested policies and procedures with respect to physical information uh, inventory and asset security. When you're talking about that uh, specific case with the casting agent, yeah. it, it appeared that it was a junior member of the casting agency's office who was at a computer. The, the, the vector of attack was actually an administrative person's workstation. Okay. And once the attacker was it, it had compromised that machine, the attacker was able to move laterally across other machines in the agency. And was in the in the environment for long enough to do surveillance, essentially to figure out what was valuable, um, and and then exfiltrated data that again, you know, belonged to several different players. Uh, Bill Simon was on our uh, show a few weeks ago. He's the executive recruiter for the entertainment industry for Corn Ferry. He told us that cybersecurity is now one of the top three key responsibilities for any CEO that he's placing at a studio or a, or a network. What do you, and Austin, I'll start with you, what do you tell a CEO that they need to know to manage this huge responsibility? The CEO needs to be asking, as well as board members need to be asking, um, the folks who are responsible for their cybersecurity, number one is what, what is it in my organization that if stolen, changed, or destroyed 
will cause irreparable harm to my business, will make me go out of business, will make me lose customer confidence. What is it and how am I protecting it? That should be one major question. And then they need to surround themselves either internally or externally with service providers with people who can help them answer that question. It's not just the liability, Jim, it's the change in regulation. You know, the guidance from the SEC and other regulators has now required certain responsibility of directors and officers and the boards of companies with respect to cyber. And I think that CEOs and boards need to adopt a plan to oversee cybersecurity generally. They need to understand and approach it as a strategic enterprise risk. They need to understand what the legal implications of those risks are as they relate to the company's specific circumstances. And they have to have adequate access, as Austin mentioned, to cyber expertise. The directors, the CEO, the board should be setting the expectation that management will establish an enterprise-wide cyber risk framework that has adequate staffing and budget to address these risks. Wim, I'd love your take on this. Do you have a sense of what you as uh, CEO of Cineonic, what you think the industry needs to do? I think today it is it is on top of our agenda, right? If I see we have external companies which are looking at our vulnerability, right? And, and, and testing our people, right? Testing uh, on phishing, testing on, on, you know, how can I get into the system and things like that. So, so, and those are all things you do to to figure out where you're at and 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 to train your people. Because to be honest, what, what we have seen is that it, it's a very different behavior. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to click around and going to see what I'm doing. So, so training the, the our people to that, right? And and we do a lot of, or should I say, uh, not just training some, hey, you have to do this, but just real life attacking the company, right? And see how we react on that. And of course, it's a staged attacking. That means that that you know nothing goes wrong. But that then you see how we behave as a, as a team, as a company. So so things like that, I do believe are real relevant. Uh, I think we, we you can always go further. What I've learned in cybersecurity that it's like technology in general, right? There's always something next happening, next coming. So you have to keep on learning. There's always new tricks and new things they're having. So. So we have it. It's probably our most important um, area. What grade, if this were a, a classroom, what, what grade would you give American industry on the way they are responding to cyber in 2021? <laughs> that's a, a C plus. That's a loaded question. C plus? James, you said a C plus? I mean, look, ransomware operators are continuing to gain access to victim environments through traditional methods, right? Phishing weak or compromised RDP credentials, uh, exploiting application software vulnerabilities. Like, come on people, this is what you need to do, right? You need to maintain user awareness and training for email security, as well as think about ways to identify and remediate malicious email as soon as it hits your employee's uh, mailbox. Um, Remote desktop services should be correctly configured and secured use the principle of least privilege wherever possible, have a policy in place to detect patterns associated with brute force attacks, make sure you back up your data, keep an appropriate recovery process in place. Ransomware operators are targeting onsite backups for encryption, so put organizations should make sure to ensure that all their backups are maintained securely offline. And then of course, the most effective form of protection from ransomware is uh, security controls, endpoint security, URL filtering or web protection, 
advanced threat prevention, uh, sandboxing, anti-phishing solutions deployed to all enterprise environments and devices. I mean, these th while these aren't going to guarantee pr prevention, they will drastically reduce the risk of infection from common variants and provide stopgap measures. That's, you know, it's so true. I, 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 James. One other point is, I'm usually a pessimist in this area, meaning I, I don't, I think, I don't think there's going to be a time where, where the private sector companies are ahead of the bad guys. There's, the bad guys are always going to find a way. They're always going to find a vulnerability. But to 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 James's point, um, organizations need to practice and that basic 101 cybersecurity cyber hygiene, and they're just not as a whole. And and the bad guys are not bringing their A game. They don't need to bring their best to the best to compromise these. It's simple, simple techniques that they're using to get into these organizations we, over and over we again. We typically, uh, the minute this is over, I'm changing my passwords. That's all there is. <laughs> you scared. And stop you scared broadcasting your SSID at home and make sure you're using WPA2. Okay. You, yeah, you scared the daylights out of me, I'll tell you that. So let me ask you, uh, we know that North Korea was involved with the Sony hack. There have been other ransomwares with the studios where people get a hold of a piece of content and hold a studio for ransom. It was an issue four or five years ago that was relatively significant. Are Have the steps that the industry has taken and the studios taken um, helped mitigate some of those problems? Are we, are we doing a better job now than we were when we were attacked by the North Koreans and Sony, et cetera? Are we getting better as an industry? From my perspective, absolutely. I mean, at, at things like the Trusted Partner Network that the MPA is spearheading, general awareness around, as I described, the facilities of all the moving pieces uh, in that information lifecycle, I think that the studios are uh, in much better shape today than they were five, 10 years ago. It's fascinating. We've been through this pandemic and we've all learned that there's a miracle called a vaccine. And if we take it, there's a 95% chance we're not going to be exposed to the virus. This is not something we can just order up a vaccine for. So uh, we are lucky that you two are in this industry with us. Uh, Godspeed to what you're doing and please come back. I think this is a topic we're gonna be talking about quite a bit as we move forward. So thank you, Austin. Thank, thank you, you, James, and My thank pleasure. you, Wim. Thanks, Jim. Our quote of the day comes from the Washington Post this week. The story follows movie fans like Jeanette Buck, who after 18 months of being home, traveled to her local AMC theater twice in one week. At a screening of Disney's Raya the Last Dragon, she heard a six-year-old boy laughing in delight and found herself moved by the joy in his voice. The Post reported that another ticket buyer, Cedric Rivers, doesn't have patience for TV shows with no definitive end and added that for him, there is something special about theaters, the darkness, the anticipation, the lack of texts or emails that keeps him focused. A vaccinated and regular moviegoer himself again, Rivers told The Post, there is nothing like it. The Insiders is presented by Cineonic and produced by the Advanced Imaging Society in Hollywood. Our executive producers are Adam Castles in New York and Mike Piltzecker in Los Angeles. Brett Harrison produced today's show and our technical director is Matthew Bach Lombardo. This is AIS.